Hello, I'm Stephen, host of the Black Doctors Podcast, here to talk about Clove. Clove is a sneaker specifically designed to meet the needs of healthcare professionals. I have a pair and I love how comfortable these shoes are, especially since I'm on my feet all day as an anesthesiologist. These shoes are perfect for the operating room because they are extra grippy and super easy to wipe clean at the end of the day. Purchase any pair of Clove shoes and compression socks at checkout. Use the code BDPXCLOVE to get your socks for free. A $22 discount just by listening to the show. This podcast is sponsored by Picmonic. In 2011, two medical students came up with the ingenious idea to combine medical education with unforgettable characters and ridiculously memorable stories. Featuring over 35,000 high-yield facts and graphics, Picmonic has helped over 600,000 students improve exam scores and perform better clinically. Picmonic has resources for pre-med and medical students, as well as other healthcare professions. Check out the show notes for a link to their website. Mention the podcast when you subscribe. With Picmonic, you can study less, but remember more. The Black Doctors Podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others, because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. This is an exciting week for the podcast. Our team is expanding. We're kicking off the Resident Expert Series. It's going to feature Dr. James Stewart. He is currently a general surgery resident. He's going to come and interview other resident physicians to add and provide additional perspective and representation to the show. Get some questions answered that I may miss as an attending physician. So stay tuned. Without further ado, Dr. Stewart, take it away. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast. I'm James, your host for this episode. I'm joined by somebody very special, Dr. Chitama Achilonu. She's a current pediatric resident at the University of Chicago and an alum at Morehouse School of Medicine. She's done some incredible work throughout her journey, some of which we'll talk about today. So I'm glad to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, I'm glad I could be here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just to start, can you just tell us a little bit about, you know, what made you want to become a doctor and then, you know, especially choose the field of pediatrics? This is extremely important. Sure. So I am one of those super cliches. I have wanted to be a doctor since I was like five years old. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, you know, it's probably a combination of two things. So I am Nigerian. And mm-hmm. for those of you who don't know, there are like four acceptable professions <laughs> that Nigerian children can grow up to be, doctor yeah. being one of them. So I have no doubt that at some point I was sleeping at night at one, two, three, and my parents were probably whispering doctor in my ear, or like <laughs> playing some videos or whatnot, where it just got planted in my head. But wherever it came from, the most important thing was that it stuck. And I just, yeah. I've always liked working with people. I always wanted to help people. And so medicine just sort of naturally progressed. And as I got older and actually realized what it meant to be a doctor, I started gravitating more towards pediatrics, really just because I like impact. And I think it's very cool that when you practice medicine, where you treat kids, you get an opportunity not just to fix the problem at hand that they came in with, but really to make lasting impacts in their life. So you're a role model for them just by existing and talking to them. You get to help them think about healthy behaviors that they can carry on with them for decades. With adults, not that you don't have that same impact, but it's a little harder to teach an old horse new tricks, you know? So 
with kids. Like they're just, they're so open and receptive to learning new things and they're always a good time. And kids are extremely resilient. And so it's great to actually see the fruits of your labor. Cause like when a kid is sick, they're like down and miserable, but once they get better, they're bouncing all over the walls. And so you can really see them like turn around right away. No, that's beautiful. And you know, I, I guess we could talk specifically about, you know, your time uh, growing up and then kind of going into med school. Like, what were some of the challenges you faced in your journey? And I think you probably have a very unique perspective because dealing with children, there's so many influences that uh, could be had that can either prevent them or make it easier for them to get to a place like medical school. So what were some of the challenges that you kind of faced Yes. I mean, you know, medical school is challenging to get into. And I think that for many of us when we're in college and we have this idea that we want to be a doctor, we don't really know what that means or really know what we're getting ourselves into. And there are a lot of things that you have to fit into your four years of college or five years of college. And so when I was an undergrad, I just, I was pre-med, I did all the things. I was a double major in biology and psychology. And then I did apply to med school and got in the first time, but was honestly like white and did not have the just capacity to start med school. Um, And so ended up not starting med school that year Mm -hmm. and took several years instead, got my master's in public health and then worked a little bit in the public health space. And then actually like because of the amount of time I had taken off and it's just like the space between undergrad and med school, I did struggle. I applied to med school a couple of times before I was able to get back in. And so then finally got back into medical school. So I think the biggest challenges were just one, really keeping that motivation the longer you're out of college and then finding meaningful opportunities to help you think about what you want to do with medicine when you get there. Like it's all fine and well to be a doctor, but Mm -hmm. after you become a doctor, then what? No, that's important though. I think you know, it's it's okay to take time off. And that kind of leads me to something we were talking about earlier is this whole concept of taking a gap year. I think, you know, when we're mentoring people, we always hear, oh, is it okay to take some time off? And, you know, before I go to medical school, is it going to hurt me? And I tend to think that it won't, but kind of what are your opinion on that? Because you've actually did take some time off before med school. Sure. So I have very strong opinions. First of all, there's no such thing as taking time off. Like, did Mm. I die? Did I fall off a cliff? (laughs) Every minute and every day that I was existing and spending time in the real world as an adult, I was gaining life experiences. I was gaining perspective that all tied into what I did when I got into medical school and then how I got into residency and what I've done now as a resident. So Mm -hmm. it's not time off. I didn't just like twiddle my thumbs and sit in my parents' basement, right? So I think first and foremost, I hate that terminology, and I think we should get rid of it. Uh, Just in the same way, it's not a gap either, because a gap suggests just by nomenclature that it's this space that Mm -hmm. you're just sort of filling time from one point to another. And again, that's really just not true. There are a lot of things that you can do, experiences that you can gain, and frankly, a kind of perspective that your colleagues who went straight through and have only known life as a student won't have when they start medical school. I mean, I think for those people who like want to gun right through, I think that that's great for them, but there are benefits to that as well, because this is certainly a marathon and stopping does take more inertia than to get going again. But the time it takes, you know, like putting some time between undergrad and med school, like really can help you think about why you want to be a doctor, making sure that medicine specifically is what you want. Because I think a lot of us have these ideas of wanting to help people and provide patient care. And there are a lot of different ways to do that. And it doesn't have to be medicine, right? So I think taking some time to really explore the medical field, the entire healthcare 
space and all the things that you can do. And then thinking about if clinical care as a physician is really the direction you want to go to. And then what else you want to do with your MD when you get there are all important things that you can really insert into that time and space to make then the four years in medical school and then your three to seven years in residency more meaningful. No, that's actually very important. And I 100% agree with you. And even in my med school class, you know, I always say slow and steady wins the race. We have people who are in their 30s, took time off, like you said. It doesn't really matter, especially if you're taking that time to reflect and kind of dive into other things. And to be honest, I really think kind of what you were touching on, people being forced or feel like they're, they should keep going right out is part of the reason we have such high burnout in medicine. Like, I mean, so many people were like, oh, my parents wanted me to go, you know, to medical school or I just thought I should keep going. And then they quit residency and kind of on a more, you know, grim note, you know, people who unfortunately commit suicide in medicine and stuff. You know, it's such a uh, thing. I think gap years are actually to kind of go off of what you said, taking time off before med school is something that probably should be encouraged more, I believe, to be honest. Yeah. Again, not time off, but putting space between undergrad and med school. Exactly. I'm, I'm here to change the narrative entirely. <laughs> no, I love it. No, no, no. Keep correcting me. And I, I think you're right. I think you're 100 percent right. Um, so I guess another question is, you know, you went to Morehouse and, you know, how was your experience going to Morehouse um, and your time that you spent there? You know, I'm a firm believer that everything happens for a reason. And when I had applied for med school the first time, I had not really considered Morehouse or Mm -hmm. ever thought about moving to Atlanta. I'm from New Jersey originally. I went to college in Jersey and really was very much a Northeast person who wanted to stay in that area. Mm -hmm. And, you know, by taking the time that I did to get my master's in public health and then just think about what I wanted to do in medicine, I think going to Morehouse was probably one of the best things that has happened for my career. You know, first and foremost, being at an HBCU med school, as you can also relate, being a Meharry alum, I think you just, you get the kind of support that you know you'll frankly never get again in the medical space just by the sheer numbers of the fact that we only make up 6% of the physician workforce. But Mm -hmm. for four years, you know, at the most formidable time of your building into a physician, you're never once made to feel other or that it's atypical or abnormal for you to be pursuing a career in medicine. And I think that's really extremely important to battle those very early doses of imposter syndrome that we all struggle with. And so I think it was just really great for me to be at Morehouse, to be able to get my my sea legs of confidence before thinking about Mm -hmm. where I wanted to go for residency. And I think it's what I was able to do with my time at Morehouse that allowed me to match the University of Chicago and then now to be um, going on as to be a chief resident next year. Wow, wow, wow. And not 100% agree with you, especially going to HBCU like that. You will never be in another place where you have so many professionals. It's, and it's, you know, it's sad. And it kind of speaks to what you were talking about, the lack of diversity in the uh, workforce. Like even at my institution, I, I really can't think of too many institutions in the country where you'll have, you know, predominantly black faculty and residents that all want you to do well. So that definitely is a pro when you're looking at places to go in. I guess when you reflect back on your journey, you know, you matched at a very powerful institution and now you're, you know, were accepted to do a chief year in Peds. You know, what were some of the things that you think or challenges when you reflect that you had going through medical school and some solutions that you have for those challenges, whether it be studying or getting involved or anything else? 
Yeah. So while I am a huge proponent in putting time between undergrad and medical school, the reality is that med school takes a kind of time and tenacity that gets harder to do the older you get. Mm -hmm. So here I was on the precipice of 30 starting med school and I just... I didn't have it like I did back when I was a sprite little 19-year-old in college pulling all-nighters like it was a way of life. And so really trying to think about time management, I think, was probably the mm. hardest part of med school. And so optimizing my functional hours without killing myself, needing to think that I'm studying until 4 o'clock in the morning, knowing that, frankly, anything for me that's happening after the midnight hour is not really landing in the way that's yeah. useful for me. So just thinking about how to optimize my time. And then also just... You know, just recognizing the fact, I think, not going straight to med school helped me to redefine who I am as more than just a student. And so really being able to hold on to that identity in medical school can be challenging because 97% of your time is spent in the classroom and studying and really like diving into that identity as a student. But for me... I was able to like use my time at Morehouse and use the opportunities that exist in Atlanta to just be able to reinforce kind of the other passions that I have outside of medicine, outside of being a student. And those gave me the like, regrouping and energy to push through to study hard and be able to get out. Wow. That is actually, I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, for me, even in residency, it was funny. Like, you know, you have that break in between, you know, you're a graduate med school and going to residency and things kind of slow down for a little bit. And I like sat and reflected. I was like, I don't even know what hobbies I have. <laughs> I was like, I've been grinding so long. I was like, what do I even like to do? And I had to literally force myself to rediscover, you know, whether it be, you know, playing instruments or whatever uh, to kind of contribute to wellness and stuff. Like I forgot what I had even liked because of that grind, like you were saying. Right. Um, but what are some of the things that you do to kind of, you know, stay well and what passions do you kind of have, especially in residency? Um, and I know you're very busy. Yeah. So wellness for me, like physical fitness is huge for me. Mm. I was definitely one of those people who joined the Peloton group. I've got a Peloton <laughs> in my apartment, literally just did a ride before we hopped on to chat today. <laughs> I love and it. it's, you know, particularly living in Chicago where it's winter nine months of the year, right? Oh, it's uh, yes. <laughs> great to have something in my apartment that I can just get moving every day and know that I can just get my heart rate up and sort of sweat out the stress of residency. So that's big for me. And then just being able to foster those relationships. So when COVID wasn't ruining my residency experience, traveling to see friends and family in all the different cities I've lived in, being able to enjoy somebody's beach in someone's country as well as like a huge passion of mine yeah, yeah. Um, in the thick of the pandemic when everyone was re-exploring or rediscovering rather outdoor activities, I bought a bike and joined this like really awesome black bike group called well, Streets Calling. Awesome. Yeah. So it's um, Streets Calling. They started in Chicago and they've now spread to a bunch of other cities actually. <laughs> and what's great, it's like, you know, 50 to upwards of 200 people that gather together with their bikes and we ride 10 to 15 miles. And at the end of wow. the ride, we patron some black owned business somewhere in Chicago. So it's like civic engagement as well as physical fitness, as well as just like good fellowship with people who have similar interests or different interests, just getting out and exploring this new city that I'm living in. Wow, that's beautiful. I've actually always wanted to get a road. You have a road bike and everything? I have a road bike. I sure Ooh, do. I love it. I love it. No, I have to look into that to see if there are, you know, kind of any cities that I'm in. That's actually very interesting. Actually, Detroit for sure. I don't know how close you are to Detroit, but that's, I think, the one in Michigan. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll check it out. Thanks for that. You know, I guess the next thing I, I really want to get your 
opinion on is the importance of networking. And, you know, I met you through some organizations that we'll talk about. And I know you're a very vocal person and are very good at networking. You know, what are what is your kind of advice for networking, especially to people who say, oh, I'm very shy and, you know, I'm not sure how to, you know, make those connections. What would you say to that? You know, honestly, who you know is way more important than what you know, because yeah. at the end of the day, you go to med school and we all take step one and step two. And so we walk out with a certain textbook amount of information, right? That yeah. all shows up in our application. We all have the MSP letters. Like there's a lot of standardization to what we look like on paper academically. Mm. And so really what turns the tide is who you know and who can speak about who you are off of paper that mm. matters. And so really like when I came into med school, that was task number one was exactly. making sure that I was networking, making sure I was building those relationships. When I got into residency, never even skipped a beat, like really fostering relationships and thinking about who's going to get me to the next stage in my career. Yeah. And then also now being a resident, making sure that I'm reaching back. And what I always tell med students is that, frankly, it's pretty much the last time in your life where you can very randomly email or mm. DM someone on Instagram or Twitter just to say, hey, you know, like I follow your career or I heard about you through X, Y, and Z. And I would just love to sit down with you and pick your brain to figure out how you got to where you are. And it's the very last time in your life that that's not weird, right? Where you're a student. And so we think about how we were when we were students and like, being first priority education and learning. And so it's just, it's a great lifting board for you to just be able to like randomly reach out to people, however you might find them. And I think that social media has made it really exceptional to find yeah. some spectacular human beings who love the idea of mentoring and actually like don't necessarily right in their immediate midst have access to people that they want to mentor, but being able to now use the virtual space to mentor anyone anywhere. No, that's actually a great point. And, you know, you kind of reminded me something that I tell people is like the one good thing, kind of what you touched on from COVID is actually the Zoom era. Like, honestly, this gives you the ability to literally, like you said, just shoot an email or if you're on Twitter, shoot a DM and literally set up a Zoom meeting with anybody across the country. And it's a lot more acceptable now than it probably was before. Like, I feel like if you try to set up a Zoom meeting with somebody pre-COVID, they'd be like, what is, what are you doing? What was Zoom? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Zoom. Real question. I remember entering year getting these random emails from Zoom and I was like, what is that? Exactly. And then suddenly <laughs> one day I came back from work and everybody was talking about Zoom and I missed it. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, you got to take those opportunities to reach out and network. It's all about who you know. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because I met you through this organization called SNMA and I know you were pretty involved throughout med school, do you mind just talking briefly about how you were involved in SNMA and kind of how it helped you throughout your journey? Sure. So SNMA, short for the Student National Medical Association, is the largest organization of minority medical students in the country. And it is such an invaluable networking space for both pre-meds and medical students to yeah. build, frankly, like lifelong relationships that they can carry with them. So I actually first got involved with SNMA when I was in college. I was on the executive board for the MAPS chapter, the Minority Association of Pre-Health Students at my undergrad. And so that's how I first knew about SNMA. And just the way that they were able to support the medical students at the time to support me getting through my pre-med classes and thinking about med school and planning my med school application back yesteryear when, you know, interviews were in person and MCATs mm -hmm. were on paper and pencil many moons ago. But I think that those 
that early support is so important to be able to, again, you know, like keep that momentum to get through this arduous process. And so when I started med school, I absolutely knew that I wanted to plug back into SNMA and so got involved on the local level with my local chapter. I was the chapter secretary in my first year of med school and then wanted to make sure that I was really keyed in on the national level. So yeah. you and I, James, I know met because we were part of the, um, the future leadership program. So yeah. We were fellows that just thought about how we could grow ourselves as mm-hmm. leaders, which is an opportunity. And then from there, I also served on the executive board as like committee chairs for the convention planning committee that was uh, for our Atlanta convention, and then also as community service chair before I graduated. And then really, you know, why that was so important was one, community engagement and just being able to be involved and be around other people who look like me is something that's a huge passion of mine. And being able to feed your passions is, again, what gives you that energy to get through this process. So that was important to me. But then also to just have individuals who every day are rooting for you and supporting you and checking in on you is more important than you even realize it is until you don't have it, right? So just the relationships that I was able to build with colleagues who we were going through the struggle together and then older physicians who were sort of on the other end of the tunnel being able to guide me and sort of lead my steps to make sure that my decisions were going to help me in the long run were really important. And then when I got to residency, I actually continued to be involved with the NMA, the National Medical Association, with the postgraduate section. I actually served on the board last year as well. Mm -hmm. And that opportunity came like immediately out of the fact that it was one of the um, past strategic planning committee members who was the the chair of the postgraduate section last Mm -hmm. year. And he was like, yo, I know you, I know the work you do, like, are you trying to be involved? And so that's sort of how I've been able to stay involved. Wow. No, that's incredible. And I think if I had to summarize it, honestly, people always probably ask you and me, like, how how else do I get involved? Or where do I start? Honestly, SNMA is probably the easiest place to start. Like that annual conference every year, the uh, week or I think the week before Easter. The weekend of Easter. The weekend, the weekend of Easter, like every year, phenomenal conference. There's people to talk to, will connect you. And like you were saying, these connections continue when you're applying for jobs, when you're applying Mm -hmm. for fellowship. Somebody's probably involved in SNMA. So, you know, thanks for talking about that. That was uh, very important. Yeah. And definitely, you know, for the listeners, the SNMA conference this year, as long as COVID lets us be great, it's supposed to be in person in Orlando, April 13th to April 17th. So I'll just put that plug out there. Absolutely. You know, one thing I wanted to talk to you briefly about is I know you have a MPH as well. And, uh-huh. you know, what was your kind of motivation behind getting an MPH and how have you seen it been useful kind of in your field of pediatrics and the work that you do? You know, it's so interesting because when I wanted to, when I first applied to med school, I was applying for MD, MPH programs mm-hmm. and then regular MD programs. And I didn't get into MD, MD MPH programs, <clears throat> but had gotten in through the traditional MD route. And so when I decided I wasn't going to go straight to med school and I went and got my MPH first instead, easily the best decision I've ever made in my life. Um, oh, wow. So public health, I think, is such a unique space and really gives you this very broad vantage point of all the different ways that you can impact people's lives and shift the narrative, right? So if you're thinking about impact and thinking about change and really addressing like health inequity, 
and community health. Public health is really that first step. Mm-hmm. And I think in medical school, sometimes our, our view is narrowed where we think that medicine is like the center of the solution. And mm-hmm. there are all these other disciplines that kind of ancillarily support when frankly, that's not the case at all. Like Public health really helps you to think about the fact that there are a ton of different ways that you can address the same issue. And then medicine is just one of those avenues, education and policy and, you know, just like all those different ways. And it's working all of those pieces together that really helps you move the needle forward and actually helps sustain change. And so that's, that's what I learned from my MPH program. And once you have that vantage point and you start seeing healthcare and wellness that way, you can't unsee it. And so then I went to medical school and I wasn't, there was no narrowing of my vision to think of medicine. So everything I was doing was thinking about how I was going to use my medical degree as part of the solution while still leveraging my experience as a public health practitioner to think about how I support my patients outside of the hospital. Like as a clinician, I only get maybe 15 to 20 minutes with them in the clinic Mm -hmm. space or a couple days with them when they're admitted to the hospital in the inpatient setting. But what happens when they leave? What happens to keep them from coming back, right? So like for many of us to go into medicine, you have to be like very almost counterintuitive, like you're trying to put yourself out of business, right? So we want to help people and we want them to never come back, ideally. And so the way for that to happen is really thinking about the different public health initiatives. And so... I've been really fortunate because in my residency experience, I've been able to really leverage that as well. Mm -hmm. So my program has, we have a community health rotation that we all do, which gives us an opportunity to sort of get into the schools. uh, And then we also, like our continuity clinic is a federally qualified health center. So we also sort of like collaborate with some of those other disciplines to think about how we're caring for our patients. And then me and two of my co-residents actually uh, have started an initiative that we call Docs Back to School that's thinking Mm -hmm. about how we like very intentionally put doctors in schools. So doing a curriculum throughout the year that helps them just think about health careers as something that they can pursue because you can't be what you can't see, right? But then also just helping them think about their health and wellness through the voices of doctors and using our medical knowledge that way. But outside of the clinic or outside of the hospital where they're just, you know, why should it be that the only time that we see them and teach them is when they're already like scared and vulnerable? Exactly. You know, we want to catch them at a time when they're just more receptive to those health changes that we want to make. Wow, that's that's incredible. And I know, you know, you're actually like a prime example of, you know, you get an MPH and you're using that knowledge, you know, to actually make change. And you're, you're 100% right. In medicine, we're very narrow minded. You know, it's like we see the patient and then we send them out. And then it's like, wow, why do they keep coming back? Even uh-huh. though side, I think we probably want them to come back, like you said. But again, you know, medicine has many angles to look at. And the MPH sounds like that's what it gave you. It kind of opened your eyes to see things from a different angle. And correct me if I'm wrong, you're also a contributor, like ABC News, right? I mean. I am. Yeah. Hmm. So ABC actually has this really exceptional opportunity for residents where they have a, a one-month rotation where you can work as a medical contributor and you learn about yeah. medical journalism and the ways that you can relay health information in more digestible chunks. Mm -hmm. And so in the beginning of this year, I was able to do that and use my medical knowledge as a pediatrician who's on their way to finishing residency to write different articles, thinking about just the things that I see in my clinical space Uh, And then also just helping ABC News to research and make sure that the information that they're putting out is vetted by physicians. So it's a great opportunity, again, to think about how we relay information to our patients and to work on 
relaying it in a way that's actually able to be received. So smaller words or mm. just like less medical jargon that we're all you know, just like all responsible for using all the time. Yeah. Right? No, that that's actually awesome, man. You know, something I don't know and, and you may know is, so these medical um, or like ABC, these kind of uh, news programs, is it a requirement for them to have some type of physician or medical expert when they publish these um articles beforehand like you're saying abc does because that's the problem with covid as you know like all this information coming out that's wrong or said incorrectly like is that a requirement or is that just something special that you kind of dealt with so it's it's not a requirement but i do think that it's something that has become very normalized so actually when i was in med school i did a similar rotation with the dr oz show and that was something that was new that the show had added because they didn't actually have individuals with, or like many individuals with medical knowledge who were helping to contribute to the story making for the show. And so some of the stories were interesting, but maybe not always medically factual. And so I think Mm -hmm. that particularly over the last five or six years, it's become more necessary to have voices with that medical knowledge there to really read through the journalism and make sure that the journalism is still fine, but that the medicine is factual as well. Wow. That's awesome. Thanks for doing that. And, you know, I wanted to switch gears to kind of the last group of questions I wanted to ask you is really about your time in residency. Again, you go to a great institution for pediatrics. How has your time in residency been? It's kind of flown by just from the time I've known you, but you're in your last year and you said, again, you were accepted for a chief year after that. So how's your time been? Yeah. So again, um, residency is so interesting. So I, I have had an amazing experience. I think I've learned a lot. I've grown tremendously as a clinician, which has been really important. And then I've gotten the kind of support that I didn't even know that I needed to just grow as a leader, grow as a clinician, grow as an advocate for my patients, grow as Uh, an individual who's like passionate about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. So all of those things I've had the opportunity to like really pursue. So I'm just, I'm excited to go into my chief year and be able to continue some of the things that I've been working on outside of the clinic space. uh, And then, you know, see where my career goes from there. So the plan for me is to pursue fellowship in emergency medicine. uh, And I think that's going to be a great opportunity for me to blend both my clinical acumen and my public health interests. No, that's awesome. And, you know, two kind of side questions to that, that I feel like surgery and everybody else get it, you know, kind of gets confused is for you, right? Chief year is something you apply to and get accepted for. And it's an additional year. Um, because for us, like I said, it's just termed differently within our residency. So that's how it works, right? Yeah. So for most of the three-year residency programs, because it's only three years and they've got a lot of clinical knowledge, they've got to squeeze into three years. Mm-hmm. And so instead of pulling chiefs out of the third-year class who are already you know, either searching for jobs or applying a fellowship and also still have a ton of clinical responsibility, mm-hmm. our chief year is really more like a junior faculty position instead. Nice. And so individuals are identified, the strongest residents from a graduating class are identified and invited to stay on as chief. And so for 
my class, we have 22 categorical PEDS residents and then three chief residents who are selected from our class. So myself and two of my colleagues will stay on for a year where we will basically oversee the residency program. We handle all of the administrative logistical pieces of running the residency program. So that's recruitment, orientation for new interns. And then we also have some clinical responsibilities. We work as a hospitalist attending on service for a couple oh, weeks wow. of the year and then can also moonlight as an attending in the emergency department as a hospitalist. So it's a great opportunity to be able to, again, continue to keep my clinical skills refined um, to make a little bit of attending money before yeah. a fellowship. <laughs> but then also, I think, and this was what my program director had told me, which really was what tipped the tide for me thinking about Chief, is that if you want a career in um, you know, graduate medical education and leadership, like you want to be a program director or you want to be able to get in the room and sit at those decision-making tables, there's really nothing in your residency experience that gives you the skill set to do that. Very and true. so chief yeah. residency or like being a chief is where you get that skill set. And that's really what boosts your CV to then be able to open those opportunities up for you beyond just clinical care. Wow. Congratulations again. That's awesome, man. Thank you. Um, how many years is your, would your EM fellowship be um, for you guys? You know, PEDS is secretly a little bit of a scam. Um, <laughs> all of our fellowships, uh, okay, it's not a scam, but I have to say all of our fellowships are three years because okay, that's true. there is uh, research, like 18 months of research built into all the pediatric fellowships. Wow. And so if you're, if you don't want to do fellowship, what the only thing you can basically do is outpatient pediatrics. So like your well child visits and your urgent mm -hmm. sick visits and everything else requires fellowship. Even up until this point, they have just started a hospital medicine fellowship. So if you want to do like inpatient care, which is ridiculous. And a lot of people are really annoyed that that's the case because residency is already 70% inpatient. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, so like secretly, if you really want to be able to go into pediatrics and earn a competitive salary and while child visits are not your jam, you really have committed yourself to five to six years of training. Wow. That that's interesting. And now that you, you you reminded me that that was kind of the weird difference between internal medicine and, and you guys is correct me if I'm wrong. Like if you're internal medicine, either you do a year or you go straight in, you could be like a hospitalist and stuff. Right. Yeah. And that's how pediatrics used to be. So there, there's no hospitalist fellowship for family medicine or for internal medicine mm -hmm. on the adult side. But pediatrics literally in the last three years just started really requiring this fellowship for academic spaces, particularly. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's a work in progress. You certainly can get a job as a hospitalist without doing the fellowship because there aren't enough fellowship program spots to be mm -hmm. able to sustain, like requiring everyone to be fellowship trained. But I, I think that over the next several years, it's going to be more and more required. Programs are going to grow positions. And yeah. so you're going to see this new fellowship be something that you have to be board certified in. Um, it's the only fellowship that's only two years versus all of our other fellowships that are three years. Wow. That's interesting. And the last question, kind of broad question that I'll ask you is, you know, again, time has really uh, moved very fast for as long as I've known you and, you know, reflecting back on your intern year, and I know all of them are like six months in now, but what are some of the challenges and kind of advice would you give to these current interns and the future interns who are now interviewing on how to kind of survive intern year, be a good doctor, uh, and kind of make it to the level you're at now? Yeah. You know, intern year, it, 
it's a blur at this point because there is so much information that's thrown at you and you it's it's like dog years, right? Like on day one and day 101, you feel so stupid. You are answering all the questions wrong. You seem to never have the right plan. And then somewhere around day like 340s, right right (laughs) towards the end of the year, suddenly (laughs) someone asks you a question, you open your mouth and you start talking and all of this really sound clinical information comes out and you're like, oh, well, look at that. I guess I'm ready to be a second year. So the exactly. biggest thing I can tell interns is, you know, trust the process and trust your your senior residents and your fellows and your attendings mm. to really help you through that process. There is no such thing as a stupid question. Only mm. stupid people who don't ask questions. Like it's worse. Ooh, I like that. I like don't that. know <laughs> and you just sit in your not knowing. Ask yeah, yeah. because this is the time for you to learn and the safe space for you to learn. Wow. No, I like that. You know, Something that I thought about when you were talking was um, the importance of choosing a good program too. Like mm. you know, to having that support. I think it's easy to get caught up when you're making your rank list, which is going to be relevant for them soon. Is oh, I want to go to only Ivy Leagues or all of these programs because I think it'll help me in the future. It's like at the end of the day, if you're in a program that doesn't support you, people are malignant. It, it, <laughs> is not going to work. <laughs> yeah. And you know what's crazy? I, I'll be the first to say, and I, I tell a lot of our applicants this as well. I, I was that fourth year that I was like, screw this. I'm going to a top 10 children's hospital. Like that's the only way that this yeah. story is landing for me. And then I didn't. I matched at University of Chicago. I mm-hmm. shed real tears on match day. Um, but when I got here and by like six months in, I realized there is nowhere else I could have been exactly. that was a better fit for me than this program. And so like the match knew mm-hmm. and the Lord knew that this was actually the program I needed. And at some of those bigger programs where there were twice as many residents as yeah. exist in my like very nice mid-sized program, I think it is, it's really hard to get that intimate relationship and individuals who know you truly and like continue to know you and support you because there's only, you know, 22 of us categorical, 27 when we add our med peds colleagues and our child neuro colleagues. So like 27 mm-hmm. of us in a class, it's big enough where there's opportunities for us to support each other for coverage so that life can happen. Yeah. But small enough that we all know each other, we all support each other, and we can build those relationships that are so key to growing as clinicians and growing as people. So I think, you know, as you think about making your rank list, it's hard to catch the vibe yeah. over Zoom. It's like really, really challenging to catch the vibe. So I just I challenge applicants to ask those tough questions, to get in contact with the residents and ask those tough questions and listen to the answer and also listen to what they're not answering. So if they're mm-hmm. dodging questions, that's an answer in and of itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I agree. And, you know, one question that I tell people to ask, you know, during uh, their Zoom kind of... How have you supported your residents during the pandemic? Wow. Thank you. Yes. No, no, I'm so glad you said that. That is like the easiest way. Easy. How they treat their residents. Like easiest way. That's so funny you said that. Like, literally, that's my favorite question. Because that's exactly what I tell applicants, too. I'm like, look, ask the programs, because there are some spaces that have not appreciated the fact that hospital settings literally fall apart 
when residents are gone. You know, mm-hmm. like if you don't have your residents, if your residents suddenly are all quarantined with COVID, the hospital doesn't run. Like, I exactly. Have you ever seen an attending try to put an order in? It's it's <laughs> struggle so exactly. much. <laughs> It'll take like days later, or it'll be exactly. Longer. So you know, there are some hospital systems I think that recognize that and have really tried to find ways to continue su- to support residents and what has been an extremely challenging time to be a trainee. Yeah. And then there are some programs who have not not done their part and they have really continued thinking about the bottom line and money. And residents tend to be at the bottom of that totem pole for money mm-hmm. because they're not bringing money into the hospital per se because they can't bill, right? So um, really, really, really ask those tough questions and ask it of the residents, like bump the leadership because mm-hmm. they've got their can answers. Like, Ask your third years who are now two and a half years into their residency being run by a pandemic, right? Ask yeah. them what the program had done to support them, the good, the bad, and the ugly, because I think everyone's got a story. No, I agree. And the last thing I'll say is like, I think that goes for diversity initiatives too, right? I think, yes. you know, I think something that I get really irritated about is, you know, there's programs who will treat diversity as the hot topic to get funding. James, you're speaking to my heart right now. (laughs) No, it's it's such a problem. It's like always the hot topic of the year. We can get $50,000 to do this, but you do not care about anything dealing with diversity truly. So I guess, how do you think you could, you know, kind of tease that out in interviews? I have trouble trying to figure out the best way to yeah, so so I think it's hard, right? Um, because diversity and diversifying residency programs is it's super trendy now. Um, mm-hmm. Every program is trying to find ways to articulate how they are recruiting mm-hmm. more diverse applicants, but don't really spend a lot of time thinking about okay, when they get there, what's the experience mm-hmm. like, or what things do you have in place? And so yeah. I think. One really easy way to sort of suss that out is that check the website, right? So if a program doesn't have a lot of applicants that look like you, mm-hmm. that already is a warning sign. True. But even, even if they do and on your interview day, you don't see them anywhere, mm-hmm. that's another warning sign, right? Because if they're not around, then it's very possible that they feel so burned out or unsupported that they don't actually feel like they can be good ambassadors for the program. And if they don't think they can be good ambassadors for the program, then that tells you everything. So at my program, we outright basically told our program leadership that when we have black and brown residents or applicants who are interviewing, this is this is why I am at this program. Like my role here is for visibility. And so while, you know, like it's it's great, I'll interview anyone, like who I really want to interview are my black applicants because yeah. I, I want them to know that we exist. I want them I want to be able to share my experience with them in that interview time and be able to just like disarm the interview process entirely and be very open and transparent with them wow. to help them make their decisions. And so that's something that my program has supported supported a hundred percent. And we, if, as long as our schedules allow it, like one of us is always interviewing one of our URM applicants whenever they are interviewing with our program. No, that's good. And you know, you kind of brought it to my attention is like, honestly, a red flag that I just thought of that some programs will do is like when a black applicant, for example, is interviewing, they ask you like, how would you contribute to, you know, diversity? Yeah. Our like, would you want to lead this initiative in our program or something like that? And, you know, I hear a lot of applicants get types of questions like that. And it's mm-hmm. like, you can't put the onus 
on, you know, essentially the underserved population all the time. Absolutely. To be your face of diversity and stuff. So that's, mm-hmm. that's good advice. So thank you for that. Yeah. And the only other thing I'll mention is that, you know, it's it goes beyond just the particular specialty that you're applying to. So mm-hmm. what's the larger GME look like? I think both you and I, James, are in the leadership space for yeah. like our GMEs, House Staff Diversity Committee. So I'm mm-hmm. the president for our House Staff Diversity Committee. And I know that you were one of the leaders for years at well at your residency program. And so that's key too, right? Exactly. Do they even have a space where the entire house staff connects together across specialties, especially yeah. for those specialties maybe that are smaller and have fewer residents? And so not every year are necessarily going to reflect the population that we serve. What are they doing to make sure that there's space created? So we, like our House Staff Diversity Committee is exceptional. Like it's just, it's such a strong bond. And when I say we rock with each other, we rock with each other so much so that residents from other programs across the city who don't have the kind of critical mass we do, they come and they hang out with us. Um, You know, our, like our Dean of GME, she's retiring this year and she, she got specific gifts for the house staff diversity committee because she knows that she like, she's always supported the work that we did. And she got us these beautiful scarves that literally say we belong. Oh, that's beautiful. Like, yeah. honestly, I shed like a real tear when she gave it to because that, that <laughs> matters, right? So like you want to make sure that from all the way at the top, so I'm talking about our dean for graduate medical education, wants to make sure that every black and brown resident feels like they belong and they are an yeah. important and a cherished part of the residency program. And if the program ain't giving you that, like drop the them. Flag. No, 100%. And, you know, I'll give you guys another shout out. Like even at SNMA at the... Um, recruitment fairs and stuff. I'm pretty sure you guys were the first program that I noticed because you guys had such a presence there, like a deep yeah. presence for years, way before other programs started. And so absolutely we've never yeah. missed an SMA. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So but no. our surgery program, I mean, honestly, I'm actually really impressed be, uh, with how well they recruit. Yeah. Surgery and emergency medicine have always, like every year, we're talking more than 40% you are yeah. residents that they match. So No, U Chicago surgery, it does extremely well at uh, recruiting uh, for their surgical residency. And I'll 100% agree with that. I think the first person I had met was, um, was that Ashley? Ashley, yeah. Queen Ashley. Yeah, she was, you talk about a person that was involved. Okay. <laughs> she was at everything. And it made a difference. Like you said, like you see somebody yeah. who cares, you see the actual institution cares about you. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's a special place. So. Yeah. You know. And, you know, and while we're not, you know, a top 10 hospital or like the highest rank, we still have a name that carries across. Sure. And so this program and all of its specialties will get you ready to go. So Ashley, exactly. like you mentioned, I mean, she is now a trauma fellow at Emory. Emory yep. mm-hmm. Right. So mm-hmm. like we, we get the job done. Trust exactly. and believe. My class literally just had mache. And when I say that mm-hmm. my co-residents are heading to fellowship at Stanford, at Love. CHLA, that's Children's Hospital of LA, at Boston Children's, at, um, where else are we going? At Children's National in D.C., uh, like bomb hospitals at Lurie. Like everyone is going into very competitive specialties at exceptional hospitals. Wow. No, that's awesome. Yeah, I I always knew. Yeah, Chicago is a powerful place. Like, you know, I think hopefully over the years we can break that stigma in medicine of, 
you know, oh, you don't go to an Ivy League or whatever, or like even the whole stigma that's kind of been in the media recently with us. I forgot the comedian's name, but this whole MDDO problem. Oh, right. Yeah. This whole kind of hierarchy that's in medicine is ridiculous. And, you know, hopefully we can get rid of that. So (laughs) So many things we need to get rid of. You know, still my first position is let's just burn the term gap year. Stop saying it's taking time off because you're still putting time into something and know that there are so many things you can do. Like when I was interviewing for residency, this is the last thing I'll say on my little soapbox. (laughs) What I did in my time between undergrad and medical school actually was more of the conversation than anything I did in medical school because I was studying 85% of my time at medical school, right? So I was able to do some things like a little research, a little community involvement, but I spent eight years doing other things that were intentionally in the K through 12 space because I knew I wanted to do pediatrics. And so I had already proven my commitment and investment to that age population in lots of different ways. And that was the conversation starter on the interview trail. Wow. Well, thank you, you know, for your time. I know you're busy and uh, this has been great. You dropped some true gems and I'm sure it'll help everybody. So thanks for your time. And Yeah, I'm glad I can be here. Doors. Always good catching up with you, James. Uh, likewise, you. likewise. Thanks. The Black Doctors Podcast is a nonprofit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen. If you enjoy listening, tell a friend about the show or share a link on social media. We are a small team and can use all the help we can get. You can reach us at the Black Doctors Podcast on Instagram or at Stephen Bradley MD on Twitter or Instagram. Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast because representation matters.